This morning we will be in 1 Timothy to start out, 1 Timothy chapter 3, but we'll really kind of be jumping all over the place. So if you take your copy of the scripture and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, in a moment I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. First Timothy 3, beginning at verse 8, we read these words. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, once more we gather together on a Sunday morning to worship you together, to exhort and encourage one another together, to hear your word and know that it bears all the weight and authority that comes from you as the sovereign king of the universe. We also know, Lord, that we are sheep, the sheep of your pasture, and you are the great shepherd. And our souls must be fed this morning. And so we pray that you would feast our souls with the words that have become so precious to us, all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. May he be glorified, may you be worshipped, and may we be encouraged. For we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we looked at elders a while back, and we saw that elders were rooted in the Jewish Old Testament particularly because that was something that was culturally happening within the Jewish nation. And we saw that as Christ instituted his church, he also instituted elders, pastors, overseer, whatever word you happen to use, all of them are referring to the same office. And that these elders were to be the spiritual leaders of the church. Then pastor already mentioned as well that the church, we believe in Scripture, is the one, the congregation, I should say, the congregation, the church, is the one that, as a group, holds the authority and ultimately makes decisions within the church. But there's one other office that we haven't looked at yet and that we need to understand, I believe, what Scripture says about this office, and that is the office of the deacon, the office of the deacon. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered if it would be nice to just maybe for a month or two or the rest of your life to have a servant or to have some kind of butler or maid? Or am I the only selfish person in here? Because it would be nice to have somebody else to do all of the work in the house, to do all of the work in the yard, to do all of the maintenance and things like that. It sure would be nice to have a servant to do that. And it seems like in any kind of popular culture, there are characters who have that loyal servant. If you watch any of the Marvel movies, you know that one of the characters, Tony Stark, has this little AI servant named Jarvis. 
Or if you know of the character um, Batman, you know that he has his servant, right? So, so servants are not out of the uh, question as far as in popular culture. But in real life, I don't know of anybody in this room, and I could be wrong, but I don't know of anybody in this room who would say that they have a full-time maid or butler. And if I were to come knocking on your door, the butler Jeeves would be opening it and answering and ushering me into your waiting room. However, as nice as that would be, it isn't really something that's going to be for most of us, I would assume. Most of us will never in our lifetime end up having a butler or a maid or a servant of some kind. Yet, God has instituted for his church a group of people who function as servants. They function as servants. And this group of people are referred to in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, as the deacons. The deacons. If the elders serve as the spiritual guidance, as the spiritual leadership of the church, what is the function of the deacons? I believe the deacons function as servants to both the elders and to the congregation. Now the word deacon there that you see in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, comes from the Greek word diakona. So really, it's just a transliteration. It's not a, a translation of the word. It's literally a, translate, a transliteration of the Greek word. And it's variously translated in our copies of the English scriptures as either deacon, as a transliteration, or minister, or ministry, or as a servant, or serving, or serve, or a, as a verb, serve. The origin of this office of deacon seems to be rooted not in the Old Testament like the elders were. Because you remember, I went back to the Old Testament when I was talking about elders, and we saw that Moses was calling for the elders. And the elders of Israel were meeting with various of the prophets that, uh, that were ministering to Israel. So we saw that elders were rooted in the Old Testament. But then you get to the New Testament, and there's this whole new office called deacon that has not been known before by anybody. And it seems to be rooted in something that happened in Acts chapter 6. So I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts 6. There is some debate as to whether or not this is a reference to the origination of the office of deacon, but I do believe that there is some warrant for it. Acts chapter 6, the context is the church, very young, new. The, the apostles are trying to figure out what does this look like. Because Jesus has said, all right, I want you to be my servants and proclaim my message to all the world and to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you essentially to be my servants proclaiming the message of the gospel. And the apostles said, yes, sir, when are you coming back? And he says, you don't worry about that. You just go do what I told you to do. So they say, okay. Jesus leaves and they say, um, now what? What does this look like? So they go back and they start trying to figure out what does the Lord Jesus want them to do? And as you can imagine with anything, if you've ever started a business, you probably know that there are just lots of hoops you have to jump through, lots of details you have to take care of, and sometimes every once in a while there's a detail that will just kind of slip through the cracks. Well, in some ways, that's what happened with the apostles as they were just trying to figure out what the Lord wanted them to do and what, they want, what he wanted the church to look like as they were trying to spread the gospel message. Acts chapter 6 records for us one of those cracks that 
ended up slipping through and they missed something. So Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. If you have a different translation, other than the King James, it probably says the Hellenistic Jews. That's who the Grecians are here. Because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So there were these Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were the Jewish people who were basically influenced by Greek culture. So they weren't the ultra-Orthodox, faithful Jewish people. They were essentially influenced by what some of the Orthodox Jews considered a pagan culture and oftentimes were looked down upon. So there was a complaint amongst these Hellenistic Jews against the Hebrews, the Jewish Jews, saying, hey, we have these widows, and one of the important aspects of the church is that the church minister to these widows. We have these widows here who are being neglected. We have a daily administration of food that is given to our widows amongst our congregation. And you saw there in Acts 6 that the church was growing rapidly. The gospel was spreading. The apostles were proclaiming the message faithfully. And there were these people who were accepting that message of the gospel. Nevertheless, there were some people amongst their number who were being neglected. And the apostles saw that need. And they realized, we can't can't do this. We can't be everything to everybody. So they gathered the congregation together. And they said, look, we have been trying to faithfully minister the word of God. And I really appreciate this. I wish you could listen to this sermon. There was a sermon at a conference I attended recently um, where, where they were talking about the word being the message of the gospel. And I believe when the, the 12 are talking about the word of God, of course they could be talking about the scriptures, and I think that's in part what they're talking about. But ultimately, I think they're talking about the word of God being the message of the gospel because the logos, the word, Jesus, is the message they were proclaiming. So they gathered the congregation together, and the, the 12 said, look, we're trying to administer the gospel to people. We're trying to proclaim the message of the gospel that is saving people, and we're seeing so many people come to Christ and come to the faith and, and get, come into our number, so much so that as we're also trying to do all of these practical serving within the body, we're leaving people out. 
And we don't exactly know what the reason was. Perhaps some of it was administrative issues. They just were missing out on ministering to some of the people. Perhaps there were still some issues within the congregation where some of the ultra-Orthodox Jews were saying, hey, look, we're not going to be feeding these, these Hellenistic Jews. I mean, yes, they've believed the gospel just like us. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're still messed up in several different ways. One of them being they've influenced themselves with the Greek culture, and we don't want them to influence us. Perhaps that was happening. Whatever the case, they were being neglected. And they were raising, I believe, a just complaint to the apostles. So the apostles say, we cannot stop proclaiming the message of the gospel. Jesus himself gave us that commission. We dare not disobey our Lord. Nevertheless, we do see the needs of our brothers and sisters here. We see that we can't be everything to everyone. So here's what we recommend. We recommend that you look amongst yourselves. And we recommend that you find seven men. And notice what they say about these seven men that they should bring before the apostles. Seven men of honest report. Seven men, in other words, who have a good reputation. Seven men who are faithful, who are reputable, who have upstanding character, and who are full of the Holy Spirit. Men who clearly love the Lord, men who clearly want to see God glorified and the gospel to be proclaimed, and also men who are filled with wisdom who have knowledge that they rightly apply in life. You find these seven men, and we will appoint them over the the administration of caring for all of these widows, because we don't want these widows to be neglected. What were the apostles going to continue to do, though, in verse 4? We will give ourselves continually. The idea is they wouldn't stop. This would be a constant in their life. Continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We will talk to the Lord and pray on behalf of our congregation, pray on behalf of the unsaved, and we will continue to minister not only the word of God to the congregation, but the message of the gospel to the people who need to hear it. These apostles understood that they could not neglect what God had told them to do, which is to proclaim a message. The message being that Jesus Christ was and is the Messiah, the one that God had promised long ago. The one who would be the suffering servant, who would live a perfect righteous life, the one who would do nothing wrong, the one who would humbly submit himself to the will of his Father, the one who would demonstrate the reality of his message and his identity through his miracles and through his message, the one who would be falsely accused, the one who would be beaten and tortured, the one who would ultimately be nailed to a cross and who would gasp his last breath, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The one whom they had thought was dead for three days 
until an angel of the Lord spoke to some women who then passed it along to the 12 disciples and said, he is not here for he is risen. Go and spread this message. The one Jesus who died for the sins of his people to save his people from their sins, the angel told Joseph, his, his earthly father. This is the message that these apostles said we cannot cease to proclaim. And it's the message that we as Christians for 2,000 years have been proclaiming. And if you're in this room right now not knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, Savior from your sins, from the, the coming judgment of God, then the appeal of these 12 apostles is the same appeal that I and every other Christian in this room have. And that is that you would believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. And when you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name, you can know that you will have eternal life and spend that life with him. Would you do that if you're in this room not knowing Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to believe that message, to submit yourself to that same message that 2,000 years ago these men said, we will not stop proclaiming? But there are some practical things in the church that have to be done. And they understood that. So the congregation looks amongst themselves. And can I just say, I don't think it was just a cursory, like, how many of you are willing to do this? All right, let's see the hands here. All right, you, 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 all right, yeah, you seven will work. I don't think that's what was happening. Because the stipulations the apostles gave were very strict. They have to be men of good reputation, filled with the Holy Spirit, and wise. How do you know any of that? Unless you have lived with those people, you have examined their life over a period of time, and you have seen that those characteristics are true of those people. There has to be evidence of it. So when they were examining and finding who the Lord would have these seven men to be, I don't think it was just this, all right, let's see who's willing to do it, and then we'll just vote on seven of you. I think this was a very carefully examined issue amongst the congregation. And when you see in verse 5 the names of the people who are listed, the very first one is a man named Stephen who is spoken of highly. And he is the only one who is given extra information. Because in verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. This was a man who was faithful in his life and conduct. This was a man who was faithful to the gospel. This was a man who was a spiritual leader. This was a man who was filled with God's Spirit. It was evident in his life that God had touched it. And when they brought those people before the apostles, what do the apostles do? They pray and lay their hands on them. And what I want you to note is the success of the gospel ministry because of this action. For in verse 7, after they have chosen these seven men who will focus on serving in the church, the word of God increased. The word of God increased. The church was trying to be faithful to the message that God had given. The apostles were trying to be faithful to the job Jesus had left them with. 
And as they faithfully tried to work out the details, the gospel message was proclaimed. And in verse 7, the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. The success of the church was tied to the faithfulness of the people and the carefulness, carefulness with which they examined and chose these seven men. I think the principle we see here is that God blesses a faithful church. God blesses a faithful church. A church that seeks to honor him by proclaiming the gospel message. A a church that seeks to honor him by having servants in the church who administer and who care for the body. And a church that has leadership that is focused on the message of the gospel and proclaiming the word of God to the sheep that Jesus has given. These are the reasons that I believe Paul would write then later that a church should have deacons, plural. Deacons. Now, I mentioned that in the Old Testament, this wasn't really mentioned, that there's no office of deacons anywhere in the Old Testament, and that is true. However, I do think the principle is there, because if, if Acts 6 is talking about really kind of the, the nucleus for what would become deacons, what is the ultimate purpose of these deacons? They're to serve as servants within the church. They're to serve as servants, I believe, not just to the church, but also to, as I mentioned earlier, the elders. Because the apostle says, you, you are the ones who are helping us in this ministry. We want to help with all these administrative things, but we have to focus on the proclamation of the gospel. And these seven men said, say no more. We will be the people who help you. We'll take care of these things even though that office isn't rooted in the Old Testament, I think we see the nucleus for it there. For example, the great patriarch of the Jewish people, Abraham, what does he do in Genesis 24 when he wants to find a wife for his son? He sends a servant. Abraham doesn't go out and try to find it. Abraham takes somebody who he trusts who's concerned about his concerns and says, here's what I want you to do. I need you to do this for me because Abraham, no doubt, being a very wealthy man, had plenty of things on his plate. He took somebody who was a servant who was willing to help him. Who else was a servant of God and also had a servant help him? Moses. God says to Moses through the burning, burning bush, I want you to go be my mouthpiece and I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, whoa, hang on a second. Whoa, whoa time out, time out. Hold, hold the phone here. I am not a good speaker. I'm not your guy. And he goes round and round with God, which is a very dangerous thing to do, and God was very merciful and gracious in those moments. Don't, don't take Moses' example there. But God eventually says to Moses, look, I, okay, you feel as though you don't have the eloquence. You feel as though you don't have the abilities. Well, look at your, your brother coming, Aaron. He can speak. Let him be your servant. And all the while, as Moses leads the children of Israel, who is helping him side by his side? Aaron. Later on, a young man named Joshua. 
Who was helping David? He had his many mighty men who were serving alongside him, who were helping him. And many other servants, obviously, as the king of Israel. Who was helping Jeremiah? Jeremiah is proclaiming the message of the Lord. He's a prophet of God. He's proclaiming the message of the Lord. And who is his amanuensis? That's a fancy word for the guy who wrote down the stuff he said. Who was the amanuensis for Jeremiah? A guy named Baruch, who was his servant. He was helping him. I think you can go throughout all of the Old Testament and you could see men of God who had faithful partners who helped serve them. And ultimately... I think the concept of servants, service and servanthood is rooted in Christ himself, which is why I asked Pastor Dixon to read Philippians chapter 2. Because what does Paul say about Jesus in those verses? He took upon him the form of a servant. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But who was helping Jesus, the servant of all? His disciples. He sends out 70 to go proclaim the message that he had given to them to proclaim. Over and over and over again, you can see men of God who were given servants to help them. And I believe, as we come back now to 1 Timothy 3, that you see this illustration of servanthood in the church, particularly in this office referred to as deacons. I want to briefly mention these qualifications that are given. In verse 8, we read that the deacons are supposed to be grave, it says in the King James. You might have a newer translation that says men of dignity. These are supposed to be dignified men. They're not supposed to be taking this flippantly. They don't take the church of God flippantly, do you? Is the church of Jesus Christ something that you just can take or leave. Eh, we'll go to church today. These men who serve in the church as deacons are supposed to be men of dignity, which means not that they can't have fun, not that they don't laugh, not that they're these Puritans with completely straight faces and they condemn any person who's having fun anywhere, but that they understand the seriousness of the institution Jesus gave his church. He gave his life for her. Don't you think his servants should take it seriously. They're not double-tongued. They're not people who, who say one thing and then mean another. They're not given to much wine. You're, you have a different translation, might say, not addicted to much wine. Basically, they're not men who get drunk because they have their faculties about them. They understand the administrative aspects of what they're doing to help serve the church. They're not greedy of filthy lucre, it's one of my favorite, favorite King Jamesy things in the Bible. Filthy lucre. It's the idea of, of getting a whole bunch of sordid gain in money. They're not focused on getting as much money. They're not a Judas who holds as the servant the purse strings and knows what goes in and what comes out, but secretly he wants it for himself. They don't, that's not the way they are. What are they doing in verse 9? They're holding the mystery of the faith in a pure and clear conscience. Deacons are not spiritually immature men. Deacons are not incapable of being spiritual leaders. 
They're supposed to hold the faith, the mystery of the faith, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that was, was originally concealed and now is revealed. They're holding with a pure conscience. And then in verse 10, exactly as we saw in Acts chapter 6, Paul says, let these first be tested. Don't just throw a guy in. Don't just say, all right, are you breathing? Are you alive? All right, yeah, good. We'll have you as a deacon. Let these men be tested. Don't just throw somebody into an office of service like this because this is an important, sacred thing. Let them be tested. Look at their character. Evaluate their lifestyle. Evaluate what they believe. And know that the men that you are putting in this position are men who have passed the test. And then, after they have passed the test, and only then, verse 10, let them use the office of deacon being found blameless. It's almost as if there's supposed to be this evaluation form and you're going over their life and you're examining this and this and this and this and the conclusion of the matter is they have been found blameless. That is to, that is to be characterized of these men. You get to verse 11 and you all of a sudden see here women must likewise. In the King James, it says, even so must their wives be grave. And most of us in this room say, whoa, whoa, hang on. <laughs> Hold up here. What's going on there? You'll notice in the King James that the must there is in italics. And the reason why it's in italics is because it's not in the original language. When Paul penned these words, he didn't write the actual Greek words must there, which means he said, even so, wives be grave. The Greek word for wives here is gunekos, which could just mean women. And so you may have a translation that says, women must likewise be dignified. And what has happened is people have taken this verse and said, okay, they're talking about deacons, and all of a sudden they're talking about women. Are we seeing here not just the office of a deacon being filled with men, but that the office can also be filled and should also be filled with women? And I don't believe, this is, this is Rodney King speaking, I don't believe that that is what Paul is talking about. But I will hasten to say, I don't necessarily believe that it is wrong if some people were to say that that is what Paul is saying. I don't think he is. But I, I don't necessarily say that I can disagree 100% if someone were to say, well, I think it could be. The reason why I think He's talking about their wives, though, is because in this context, the very next verse, he's going to talk about deacons being the husbands of one wife. So I do think that ultimately he's talking about the wives of the deacon. If he wanted it to be the office of deaconess, where you have not only men who are deacons, but also women who are deaconesses, he could have used a completely different word that would have made it abundantly clear that that's what he was talking about. But he used the word gunekas, which is a word that means woman, but also means wife. Which begs now another question. If you are examining the life of a man to be in the office of deacon, you must also evaluate his wife. Because if, if I am right, in verse 11... Paul is saying there are actually some stipulations, not only for the deacons, but for their wives as well. Their wives must be grave, 
Again, dignified, women of dignity, not slanderers. That is to say, they're not people spreading malicious gossip. They have evil intent with the words they're saying. They're saying things that they either don't know or they know are not true, but they're saying it anyways with malicious intent. These women are not to be slanderers, but rather they're supposed to be sober. The idea is that they're temperate. They have self-control and faithful in all things. Their life is overall characterized by a faithfulness to their husband, to their children, to the faith, to their church. If this is the case, then there is a sense in which the office of deacon is a team effort in the household. Because a deacon not only serves the church himself, but the idea, I think, is that his wife serves alongside him. That he has, if he's married, he has a wife who is faithfully serving alongside him. In verse 12, we read then that as these deacons are the husbands of one wife, in the same way an elder should be the husband of one wife, that they are also leading their children, ruling over their children, and they're ruling their houses well. And if all of that is true of them and their wives, then notice this, for they that have used the office of deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree or a high standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Jesus Christ. In the end, some of, some of us might think that the office of deacon is just a meh position. It's whatever. It's not really a big deal. The, the important thing are the pastors. That's the important thing. No, 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 no. This office here is of vital importance in the church. And these characteristics are all characteristics of a life well-lived. Because these are all spiritual fruit, spiritually commendable character. So, if elders are to be the spiritual leaders within the church, what is the function of the deacons? And I believe, ultimately, as we finish, there are two functions. If the elders are the spiritual leaders, then what are the functions of the deacons? And here are the two functions. First of all, they are servants in the church. That's number one. They are servants. If Acts 6 is a reference to the nucleus or beginning of the idea of deacons, at the very least the idea of it, what, were the point, what was the point of those men's being called to help in the church with the administration of these widows who were being neglected? They were to serve so that they could free up the apostles to continue to proclaim the gospel message. If that is the case then deacons are as well to serve. The very word deacon means serve. That's the whole point, is they're servants. And who are they serving? I believe, number one, they're helping the elders. Because that's what you see in Acts 6. They're helping the apostles, who were the ultimate, if you will, the ultimate elders. But also here, as Timothy is talking, or Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's laying out the qualifications of elders, notice he mentions the elders first. They have the preeminence in this because they are the spiritual leaders, but they need help. They can't do everything. Some might want to, but they've got to focus on what God has called them to do. And so Paul says, Timothy, I want you to look inside your congregation, and I want your congregation to realize that your elders can't do everything. They can't be everything to everyone. So what you need to do is you need to find men who are of spiritual, noble character and have those men serve in the church. Examine them carefully. Look at their conduct. 
and let them serve you and the rest of the elders. And I will hasten to add that there's no specific handyman qualifications that Paul gives. Sometimes we can think like the deacons, oh, they're supposed to be, you know, the good artisans. They're supposed to be really good at handling a wrench or handling a screwdriver. Paul doesn't say that. Everything he lists for the qualifications are that they are spiritually devout men with honest, reputable character. That's the important part. If they're willing to serve and they have reputable character, then these men can function as elders helping, excuse me, as, as deacons helping the elders, and number two, helping the assembly. If Acts 6 is a reference to the nucleus of deacons, who are ultimately those, those deacons, those prototype deacons helping? The congregation. There's the women in the church who are being neglected, and the elders or the apostles in that case are saying, look, we're going to continue to focus on the gospel message. You deacons, go help serve them. And so the deacon says, we will do that. You continue in the prayer and the ministry of the gospel and the word of God. We'll come here, and we will help the congregation. It's not that the elders weren't helping or that they were in these ivory towers. They just couldn't do everything. And so there were these two functions that they were given. They were helping the elders and they were helping the assembly. So they function as servants in the church. But number two, I believe they, they function as examples. As examples. And I get this from 1 Timothy. Because Paul says, let these people be tested. Let them be proved. If somebody is being tested on the basis of their character, how do you evaluate it? I think the only way you can evaluate it is if you have examined both what their character looks like out in public, in private, and amongst the assembly. And if they are proving to be of reputable character, then what are they also proving to be de facto? Examples of godly conduct. That's exactly what they're doing. So when these deacons are serving in the church, they're helping the elders, they're helping the assembly, they are simultaneously serving as examples to the outside world. Somebody comes into that congregation and they see these men and their wives serving amongst the congregation and they see these godly men and women who love God and who are helping other people and they say, what is different about them? We want to serve ourselves. We want to help ourselves. These people are completely outside-focused. They're not thinking about themselves. What is different about them? But then in the congregation, the believers in the church, as they see these men and women, women serving, helping the congregation, what are they seeing? Examples of the principle Jesus taught that he who wishes to be first or greatest must become least. The illustration Jesus gave to his disciples in the upper room. They're all sitting up there reclining, celebrating the Passover feast, and Jesus is giving them this spiritual illustration of what he's about to do. But they're all reclining there with dirty feet. And each disciple is looking at one another thinking, all right, there's no servants around here. Who's going to go and wash so-and-so's feet? Not me. Not I. The master and teacher gets up, lays aside his robes, puts upon himself a servant robe, grabs a basin of water, and comes to the first disciple's feet 
kneels down gently and carefully and begins to wash. Doing the job that even in our 21st century American culture, none of us in this room would be willing to do. None of us. Feet are disgusting. Imagine how much worse it is in that ancient culture when they don't have Nike shoes. Jesus goes to the next disciple and washes his feet. And by this time, the rest of the disciples are saying, what's going on here? What, what is happening? And one by one, Jesus washes each disciple's feet until he comes to Peter. And Peter says, don't you dare touch my feet. That is demeaning. It's not that Peter is a weird person who doesn't want people touching his feet. It's Peter saying, Jesus, you're the master. You're the preeminent one. Why are you doing that? You shouldn't be doing that. You will not touch my feet. I think Peter has noble intentions here. You will not touch my feet because you are the master and I am not the master. Servants do that job. And Jesus said, Jesus says, look, if you want to be a part of me, then I must wash your feet. And Peter says, okay, then don't wash my feet. Wash my hands, wash my head, wash, wash everything. I want to be a part of you. And then Jesus, after he has washed the disciples' feet, comes to them and says, do you know what I've done to you? You call me master and Lord, and rightly so, for I am. If I, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser, if I, your master and Lord, have washed your feet, have done the demeaning task, have served you in the most lowly and humiliating way possible, how much more ought you to serve one another? If the deacons are serving the church, they are being examples to the believers in the church of what Christ-like humility and service looks like. Which means none of us in this room should say, oh, I see something that needs to get done. Well, let's go call the deacons and have them do that. Oh, I see so-and-so needs help with this. Well, let me contact my deacon. I'll make sure that they go do that. The concept is that we all, in a sense, should be deacons. We may not be holding the office of deacon, but we all should be willing to strip off these clothes and put on servants' clothes and kneeling down and washing each other's feet. Shouldn't we? If deacons serve helping the elders, helping the assembly, and if they live as godly examples of service both to the people who are not Christians as well as to the believers in the congregation, how much more should you and I do the exact same thing? We cannot compartmentalize Christianity. If Jesus said, by all this, people will know you're my, my disciples, if you have love for one another, and if you, by love, serve one another, then there should be no mindset amongst any of us, me or you or anybody, that that job is for the deacon, that that job is for an elder, that that job is for so-and-so. If there is a need in the church, 
we look to these men who fill the office of deacon and their wives who are faithfully serving alongside them. We see their godly example of servanthood to the elders and to us, the assembly, and to, as their examples of servanthood, it should move each of us to say, how can I serve? So the church... I believe, should carefully follow these guidelines. I don't think when we go to elect deacons, it should just be this like, well, are you alive? All right, you're breathing, you're flesh and blood, you're a human being, great. We'll nominate you. I think it should be very carefully followed, these guidelines and stipulations that Paul has given. And I think a healthy church will continue to thrive when its leadership and its servants maintain godly attitudes and conducts. Because I go back to Acts 6 and what happens after the apostles lay out and the congregation lay out these seven men to serve. The church begins to grow. The gospel is freely proclaimed because those apostles had the freedom to go and proclaim it more and the servants were helping take care of the administrative aspects and the gospel message was proclaimed and people were being saved and the church was was growing and was thriving. I think that that is the recipe for every church success. As we honor God, as we have men in leadership who are faithful to the word of God and who serve as godly examples and servants in the church, then we will see the blessing of God on that congregation. So what do deacons function as? Here's the answer. They function as servants to the church and examples of Christ-like virtue to both the world and to the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have granted to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places And that you have laid out for us in your word illustrations, examples, and clear articulations of what your desires are for us as your church. Lord, there may be someone in this room who has heard all of this, but has not even taken the first step in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that if there is somebody in this room like that, your spirit would move and that you would convict of sin, show where they need Jesus Christ to save them from their sins and to know that they can have eternal life with all the joys and privileges and peace with God that come with it. And I pray for those of us in this room, Lord, who are Christians, all at various stages and different walks of life, nevertheless being redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that you would help us to be servants to one another, to be examples both to the outside world of your love and the joy that we have as well as to examples to one another of what Christ-like virtue looks like in everyday living in the church. Be glorified, Lord, as our church tries to do those very things all to your honor. Amen.